Welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. On today's episode, I'm joined by Lori Oliver. I didn't have one of those careers where you could exit and then just pop right back in at the same level where you left. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of women at this time would just leave the workforce to raise their families and then either choose not to come back at all or feel like they had to start at the reception desk. I think that my motivation for asking for reduced time was to make sure I was keeping sort of a foot in the door and being able to continue doing what I loved. Lori is the founder and CEO of The Inactive Company, a sleep performance company. She is also the founder and CEO of Birth Atlanta, a consulting company helping consumer products from branding to product development to manufacturing all the way to launch. Lori is an incredible woman who has had a phenomenal career. She has been a highly sought out marketing and advertising consultant and strategist. She has worked with some of the top brands, including Coca-Cola, and was even brought on as GM of Blakely Ventures, Sarah Blakely's incubator under the Spanx umbrella, where she was also part of their leadership team. It's hard as you listen to this not to look at her as somewhat of a golden goose where everything she touches turns to gold. But really, I want you to listen down deeper because she hits on some major challenges that were in her path. And often she let her proactive nature and her asking for what she wanted to really enable her to continue moving forward. Whether that was being married and realizing that she was in a marriage that was not working with a one-year-old and having to make an incredibly difficult decision. From realizing that as a mother with young children, that she needed to figure out a different work schedule so that she could have both, to completely changing the way that she led from being more masculine energy to having one that was truly integrated where she could show up as her authentic leadership self and so many more. I encourage you really to listen to what she has to share. She truly is a trailblazer in her career and what she has learned and so much that we can take away and apply in our own careers. I'm so excited for y'all to meet Lori. Enjoy this one. Welcome to Rising Tide, Lori. Thank you, Margaret. It's great to be here. Yes, I'm so excited. And I, I'm even more excited because this, this feels like this beautiful circle of women supporting other women and that we got connected through a mutual contact who was also on the podcast, Catherine O'Day, but she's known you for a while now, but you've been a mentor to Catherine. So I'm so excited that she was willing to make this introduction. Well, I am too. Catherine is a rock star. I have known her since her early 20s. And (laughs) I guess she does say I'm a mentor. She said it on your podcast and it was very sweet, but she's amazing. Love her. Oh, I love that. And I think it's so neat. And what was really great about the whole thing is that, you know, like, I always think it's really special when somebody that I really admire 
refers to somebody else with regard. So needless to say, I have been very excited and looking forward to getting to spend this time with you and share what you have quite a incredible story. <laughs> I'm the I'm the unconventional entry. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you know, I I've spent a lot of time lately talking with women and and hearing about kind of letting go of the traditional path and this idea of really kind of creating creating the life that you want, creating the career that you want. And I think this conversation could not come at a better time because you really were ahead of the game and doing that throughout your career. And what's really interesting is, you know, today you are founder of the Inactive Company. You are also founder and CEO of Birth, which is an amazing consulting company for consumer brands. And then you've been a serial entrepreneur now for probably the last, I don't know, six years or so with products, but I, I would imagine this wasn't necessarily something you thought you would be doing when you first came out of college with a journalism degree. Exactly. No, I had no idea. In fact, you know, basically as a child, I think I was entrepreneurial. I was creative. I was a busybody problem solver. I liked people, but I was it also a generalist? I sort of liked everything. I had no idea what I wanted to study when I was in college. And in fact, really sort of entered kind of uh, not dark, but awkward phase in college. Wasn't really any kind of college superstar where I was a club joiner or started to get direction even then. I was, I guess, a late bloomer. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I don't think that's that uncommon, you know, because yeah. I think there's a lot where there's this perception that somehow you're going to go to college, you somehow figure out what you want to do, and then you're going to graduate and you know, you know what you want. And that's just one, you just don't have enough experience and exposure, even in college. But I I think that's very real. I think a lot of people can connect to that experience. You know, you ended up landing on getting on journalism as a degree. How did you end up picking that as kind of your at least a place where you wanted to focus your time while you were in school. Right. Well, writing came easily for me, Um, expressing ideas and communicating verbally and in writing. I did not necessarily know how I wanted to use a journalism degree, but I thought writing was a great skill to have no matter what I decided to do. And, you know, that was sort of the easiest path for me to get in and out of college, honestly. How do do I get educated and start off? And, And that was the area that I identified that would be probably the easiest. So that is why I chose it. And then when I started my career, that was also fairly random. My goal was, A, to move to Los Angeles, get out of the South. I'd grown up in Athens, Georgia, where my dad was a professor at Georgia. And I went to school at the University of Georgia. But I always had this feeling of there's something more in the broader world. This was at the time where we didn't do, you know, a lot of, certainly I didn't, a lot of traveling internationally or things like that. But I always had this tug around different ideas, more diverse people, you know, more discussion about things out in the open. And I found the South to be a little bit suffocating. So my first goal was to get out of the South. And I picked LA. I'd never been to California, but I decided the West Coast would have all these kind of obscure things that I was looking for. And then I also, I started interviewing and I picked the job that offered me the highest salary. 
<laughs> because I knew I knew California was expensive. So I would need a lot of money to, to get out there and live out there by myself. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, the logic makes sense. And I think as far as, you know, getting out and what's really interesting is, you know, I don't say this to date you, but I say this more so I think to give everyone the perspective of like how, again, how forward thinking this was, I think at the time, because this was, you know, this was back in the mid eighties. So, you know, to like pick up and leave an area that you've known, you've grown up your whole life, like, and move across the entire country to a place you've, had you been to LA? No. Yeah. So never even been there. I mean, that's huge. And now you can at least research places, but like there's pretty limited insight to what it would be like. So I think the the courage that that <laughs> took is, is it shows that you're quite brave at that time. And then, um, so now you took a job at TRW I did. and this is, you know, what I think is really cool is you, you had top secret security clearance, but you were doing marketing and communications there. So will you tell us, tell us about this job? Well, nobody knows of TRW anymore, but at the time it was a fortune 50 corporation with a hundred thousand plus employees. We had a hundred acre campus in Los Angeles, wow. right in the Redondo Beach area and also in Orange County. And it was a major player in space and defense. It was a government, big government contractor and specialized in military technology and space and defense. So a lot of space and weapons machinery and technology, a true innovation company. And that really was my first exposure to innovation. And I used my journalism degree because I was hired in as really the only communications person in my department and was able to help write government contract proposals. You know, I worked on a lot of internal communications. And then the company also had me manage the corporate-wide, the, the campus-wide parking and traffic function, which was a big deal because I was 22. I'd never, you know, I had, I was the head lifeguard at a city pool in Athens, Georgia, but I had never otherwise managed anybody professionally. But it was really important that the employees and anybody else that was parking on this huge government campus you know, followed all the rules. We had to be able to have fire lanes clear, you know, restricted areas had to be maintained that way. So we had, I had a little fleet of essentially like corporate cops that drove around in golf carts (laughs) and we gave out little tickets and made sure that everything was cool. But that was really the first time I managed a team as well as use my technical part of my degree in journalism as a writer. Right. Oh my gosh. What a, I'm sure again, one of those things where maybe had never even considered that as a way of leveraging your degree. Exactly. That's amazing. So now you were there for what, seven years. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh I, I actually about midway through that journey, I yeah. was recruited by TRW's financial services sector. They were also a big pioneer in technology and they were integrating a lot and automating a lot of different services and data at the time, you know, early computer days, like rooms of huge computers. And um, that was my first exposure to entrepreneurship because I was part of a team of 12 people and we built 
a business around uh, national integrated real estate and mortgage services. We consolidated and automated this cottage industry of a, you know the appraisal industry, title services, mortgage loan documents, et cetera, to make it easier for home buyers to get loans and for lenders to make loans. Wow. So we built the company from absolutely nothing to $360 million in th- about three years. Wow. Oh, gosh. So that was super fun. And I, that's really where I got the entrepreneurship bug. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, that's huge on a team of 12 to take it to $360 million in three years. I mean, that's unbelievable numbers. What was your role there? And then how? Like, how did you guys do it? Well, I was hired as the marketing and communications manager. There you, you go. Know, I was, I don't know, I was probably like 25 years old. I worked for the vice president of marketing and I had a staff that basically we, it was B2C and B2B. And so we did all the external advertising. We started a brand identity for this company. We did a lot of the internal communications. We really grew a lot through acquisition And so we had to help integrate all these different cultures into one cohesive national team. So it was a lot of um, internal and external communications and just making it up as we went. Right. Wow. I mean, that is just so amazing. And I get, yes, I mean, startups can be a lot of fun. You wear a lot of hats. And to your point, you you oftentimes are making it up as you go or learning as you go, you know, but kind of putting was, the wheels on the bus as you're driving down the highway. <laughs> yes. I was really fortunate to have a wonderful team and supervisor that really, you know, helped teach me. We had a lot of experience on the team. I was yeah. sort of the, the newbie, but you know, great people that knew a lot and were willing to share. And it was, it was, it was amazing. It was really that great. It is amazing. Okay. So you're getting your flavor for the entrepreneurial bug, but what's really interesting is so seven years there and then you end up leaving and you move back to Atlanta, but what events transpired that kind of caused you to, to leave what was sounds wildly successful and also leave LA. Right. And it was a lot of fun. So (laughs) during that time, I married a Los Angeles police officer who became a police detective, nice person to this day. I had a child and the Rodney King incident happened. And that was early 1991 in the spring. And I think that just being part of the police culture, which was really new for me. I mean, I kept saying, I grew up in the South. We don't lock our doors. You know, what is all this gang and drug activity, extraditing criminals? And it was very, very intense. And clearly the Rodney King incident, I think, showed the entire world, um, at least the country, how divisive, you know, law enforcement and major parts of the community can be. And when that happened, I had had a growing feeling around my husband's cynicism just by nature of the exposure he had 24-7 to such a negative element. But when he sort of came down on the side of law enforcement at the Rodney King incident, that was a, a little bit of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I knew I had to make a decision, you know, personally and for my newborn child. I mean, my my son was... Rodney King happened almost exactly when my son turned one year old. So he's 12 months old. And, you know, I sort of had this reckoning and that's what 
just made me decide to leave because my family was in the South. And if I was going to be a single mom, you know, having some kind of family support closer than 3000 miles away, I figured would be important. Oh my gosh. So again, I think another, I mean, that's just, I mean, anyone that is familiar with that period of time, it was so tumultuous and especially in LA. And then to have that close of a connection to the LAPD, you know, that's, that's really incredible. And, you know, I think again, your courage to have to face, like to face a really hard reality as a new mom, thousands of miles away from home and realizing that, you know, this may not be somebody that you could be with because you just on something that was so important, could not see eye to eye. And I just, that's pretty incredible. So, okay. So you pick up you and your son and move back across the country to Atlanta this time. Mm-hmm. This is late 1991 and Atlanta had just won the Olympic bid the previous fall. It was like fall of 1990. And I cold called before I left the, a woman who was a vice president at Cox newspapers who I just sort of threw you know, there was no internet at this time. So just through <laughs> research, I, I sort of had identified her as a mover and shaker and somebody that knew everybody in Atlanta. So I sent her a letter in snail mail and my resume and just said, I am moving to Atlanta. Here's what I've done. And I'd like to find a job in marketing, advertising, communication, something. Would you help me? And her name is Kathy Coffey, and she died several years ago, unfortunately, but she helped me. And she got me some interviews, introduced me to some people, and I was able to get a job offer. This firm that had written the bid for Atlanta worked with the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games. The, the company is now called Icon. It was called Iconologic before that, but at the very beginning, it was called Copeland Herthler. And so I hired into Copeland Herthler, had these two principals. One was a graphic designer by trade and the other was a writer. And the marriage of the two was amazing. And they're the two really responsible for putting Atlanta's bid together and helping Atlanta win the Olympic Games, which is just still a miracle. (laughs) But what they became so obsessed with the Olympics that they needed somebody to manage their business, the, the corporate side of the business. They knew there was opportunity to work with corporate, I mean, with Olympic sponsors that were corporations, but they really wanted to focus on the Olympic committee and future Olympic bids and things. And so I hired in as the managing director of that firm and started working with them and was able to work with you know, started my kind of the next decade of working with a lot of not only the big global companies here in Atlanta, but, but really around the world. So it was amazing. Oh my gosh. That is so <laughs> cool. I have to, I have to go back. Cause I'm really curious. Did, did, uh, did Kathy ever tell you like why she helped you? No, I mean, I think she helped a lot of people. I don't yeah. think I was unique when we met, we really shared a commonality and a bond, but I don't think that she foresaw anything like that. She was just an amazing person. 
Yeah, I just, I think that's so neat in that, you know, that you found her, you know, and like identified her as somebody who could, could help you. And again, to your point, like you had to be very resourceful to do that because this is not a time where there's LinkedIn that you can easily look to see who's, who might know somebody or who's part of some really cool organizations or brands that you are interested in. So, and she was also really the first female mentor I'd had you know, because of my experience at TRW, it was very male dominated. There were a lot of ex-military employees, you know, a lot of engineering employees. And again, it was, you know, so early, Right. it was mostly men. So my early mentors, the people that, you know, showed me the ropes in business were 99% male. And so Kathy was significant for being female as well. Absolutely. Again, I'm like another like kind of trailblazer in, you know, for her to have be as successful as she was as a woman in the South at that time. So, okay. So you're at what is now known as icon and we're working there at tell. So, you know, I, and you mentioned that this was kind of the start of like a decade of really doing a lot of this, like consulting work, working with major brands. So you know, obviously you enjoyed it. You know, what did you, what did you find in the work that was really speaking to you that really kind of kept you doing it? So I was fortunate to work with innovative marketing firms and, you know, the South was not at that time, especially particularly known for innovative marketing consultants, but I managed to find the few that were out there and I would count Iconologic as as one of them. So we were able to really explore some progressive ideas. And at that time, you know, it was things like integrated marketing, experiential marketing. Those were all new terms. Even dot com, all the first dot com boom in the late 90s, I was fortunate enough to be part of. And but every every dot com business thought that they should name their business, you know business.com. And we're like, no, no, the internet is a channel more. It's not a business model per se. And you don't, your brand is still your brand, but just all of the technology and everything that was happening was at light speed in terms of the market, in terms of the consumer mindset and expectations, even the experience of having the Olympic games in the South and the opportunity for companies and the city to deliver to the world an updated perception of what the South represented. Those were just very stimulating, you know, problems to solve with groups of people who were really, really interesting. So I worked with um, Joey Ryman at Bright House for several years. Um, He was kind of one of the bad boys of, of advertising. He had come from New York And I had met him, we shared a client and met him in a meeting. And I sort of skipped over when I was working at a kind of logic, I reunited with and married my high school sweetheart. (laughs) So who had gone to Georgia Tech and stayed in Atlanta. But by the time I was sort of ready to leave Iconologic, the reason there was because I was pregnant with my second child, my first with my second husband. And I just had started, this is kind of the point in my life where I loved what I did, but I was getting off of just the autopilot around 
this is my career and this is my trajectory. And then here's my life over here. And I really started to integrate the two and make more decisions, establish goals, create schedules, and even change my leadership style, honestly, to reflect kind of that more intentional integration of what I really was looking for in a broader life, wanting both a career and a family, you know, a rich family life. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have several questions. So uh, probably the, the, one of the last things you said, which was really interesting is you said it, you changed your leadership style. Mm-hmm. So give us a flavor of that. What was it before? And then what were maybe, what were you doing differently now as you're starting to prioritize this integrated life? Great question. And again, I was really making this up as I went along. I didn't have Unfortunately, I wish I did the luxury of a coach or, you know, I, there were not a lot of, I don't think I really made time to find mentors at that time. I was just so busy trying to manage my home life and my career. You know, I was doing the best I could. And as I said, I was raised mostly in business by male mentors. So I think that my old leadership style was more traditionally masculine. Even, I mean, I, I don't know that the people that work for me and with me would say that I was a hard ass, but I think that they would say I was super intense. I think they would say that I was probably more independent than I was collaborative and inclusive. Mm -hmm. So in this phase of my life, I really rethought all of those things. You know, I had in addition, so the intensity, I really was trying to learn to balance that with levity and fun. Like, you know, like, okay, wait, wait, this stuff is actually very fun. Why am I not having enough fun? <laughs> and I, I found that once I really brought my love for fun into my work life, and of course having kids helps that because they're so darn fun. I really <laughs> thought this doesn't make sense to be a whole different person at work, you know? So I started balancing that intent. I didn't lose my intensity, but I balanced it with more fun. I, the energy that I had, I learned to regulate and have also periods of calm, which is still to this day hard for me. And I keep continuing to acquire skills around that. The creativity that I had, I had to better structure, you know, to really be able to translate creative ideas into workable solutions and, and focus on the ones that that made sense and forget the rest. And then this independent thing, I really hearken back more to, you know, growing up being a member of sports teams and cheerleading squads and said, why am I not acting, you know, more like a teammate versus a little dictator? Right. <laughs> so I, you know, and, and I kind of was finding my purpose around and and learning that I don't really have to, it's not about managing people, you know, quote, managing people, really, it's about modeling more purpose-filled behavior and bringing the people that you work with along with you in that mission. Yeah, I, that, thank you for sharing that. And I, that makes a lot of sense. And you said some things that were I mean, I would imagine somewhat exhausting of you were really 
working in a time where, and I think men and women, this is definitely true, where like there's this massive separation and siloing of this is you at home and you don't talk about work. And this is you at work and you don't talk about home. And that had to have been unbelievably exhausting to have these two personas and they couldn't cross over. Yeah. Well, and it it got into my own head. I mean, it wasn't even oh. how I was perceived differently. It was how I was perceiving myself. Mm. And so breaking that down was a process. And, but, um, and, you know, it continues always, <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm really glad I, I realized it um, yeah. soon enough and continue to work on it. So, I mean, it sounds like when you were pregnant with your second, that was a catalyst. Was there, I mean, like, as you think about it, that's a pretty big change. And again, somewhat unconventional at the time, again, mm-hmm. like having that integrate, like the integration of work and life, like that's really, I would say more of the newer concept. What was the motivation or the driver that really made it something that you wanted to work on and were committed to doing? I guess it was probably the pregnancy of my third child. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I was in a meeting with Joey Ryman, who was the founder of Bright House. It was as he was beginning to really develop that business. And after the meeting, he came up to me and just was, you know, chatting around what we had agreed to and how we discussed things in the meeting and complimented me, which was really nice, and said, asked me if I would consider joining his team. You know, asked me what my intentions were at my current position and would I ever consider joining his growing team? And I said, actually, I would. I'm really interested in taking fewer days a week position. I can't remember exactly how I said it, but, you know, I didn't say part time, but I told him that I was really thinking about pulling back slightly from the number of hours that I was working. And you know, he was progressive minded and said, let's talk. I'm, I'm open. So I started a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday schedule working at Bright House. It was full days, but it was a three day a week position. That's amazing. That's so great. And I think it's such a testament to you and just your capability, you know, in the work that you do and how much, you know, he obviously admired you. And then also that you asked for what you wanted. That's really big, you know, cause I, I'm sure like saying that out loud, I'm sure there were nerves being saying like, Oh yes. Yes. However, on um, these are the terms. <laughs> yes. But you know, by that time, and it, it was, I'd had two children then because I actually had my third child when I was at Bright House, but it was funny because, you know, when you, once you've become a single mother and then, you, you know, sure. you have another marriage, it's kind of like, what do I want and what do I need? And then how can I match that with somebody else's need? I'm not, you know, I, and if that works, yeah, that's a win-win for everybody. Mm. And it doesn't really matter what it looks like. And I had gotten okay with that as a concept. So it was a little bit easier for me just to kind of stand in front of Joey and say, this is what I'm looking for. If it works for you, it would, you know, I'm willing to talk about it. I really love that, that mindset. I think that's such a great way to look at it of trying to match needs of like, what do I, what am I looking for? What do I need? And who is looking for that? And has, you know, like, I think that's such a great way to look at it. I love that so much. Okay. So 
we've gotten, you know, we're, we're, we're well into this decade or so of working and consulting. So you're at Bright House. I love that your title on LinkedIn is thinker. Mm-hmm. You know, it just kind of gives us a flavor of, you know, the type of agency this was. It's amazing. Yes, yes it was. <laughs> so there for a couple of years and then you moved to, is, is it K? How do they say it? K. Okay. And then, so this was a New York based company. Yes. So and it still is right. They're based in New York at the time. Their biggest client was the Southern company based here in Atlanta, Georgia. And they needed someone to head their. They wanted an Atlanta, bigger Atlanta presence and wanted a head for their Atlanta office. And fortunately for me, the client at Southern Company, the head of communications there, a woman named Lee Birdsong, who just recently retired. She's amazing as well. She was my client back at Copeland Herthler, my first <laughs> Atlanta position, because Georgia Power, which is part of the Southern Company, was an Olympic sponsor. She told her agency that she would like them to hire somebody like me. She named me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which was great. And so they called, next thing I knew, I was getting a phone call from New York and the principals came to Atlanta. We had lunch. They just said, we want to, you know, kind of see who you are, what this deal is. And by the end of lunch, it was a mutual love fest. And, you know, they said, what would it take for, why don't we just get you? (laughs) Right. Right. Oh my gosh, how amazing that, again, this relationship that you had from years before and the quality of the relationship was so great that you were the one that she said, if if I could have what I want, I want Lori. I want Lori Oliver. That's who you can get for me. And then how amazing, like the, I mean, the power of your network and relationships, I think is just, I mean, that's, and then how great to be asked, what will it take? What an amazing position to be in. Oh my gosh. So obviously they figured out a way to win you because you joined. I did. And they agreed to three days a week. I continued that because I, by that time had three children and it ended up being, you know, a little crazier than I had anticipated because I did have to kind of go back and forth between Atlanta and New York, but it was, you know, it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. And Again, staying in touch with what was happening in New York, which was different than Atlanta, right. I think really informed my thinking and my ability to provide good insight and, and to grow as a marketer. So it was a, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. And then you said you were head of the Atlanta office. So were you bringing in the team underneath you once you got hired on? Yes, I was. I hired a team and I balanced that with going to the airport dressed like Cleopatra because I had volunteered at my daughter's kindergarten class in the history program. And I'd rip off, you know, makeup and wigs as I drove to the airport to fly to to New York. But yes, I had half of the team in New York and half the team in Atlanta and somehow made it all work. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I know you say somehow if I pushed you on it, I mean, like, how did you make it work? Cause that is a lot. Three young kids, very demanding, exciting, but demanding career, even with three days a week. So how, I mean, how did you do it? So thank you for asking that because I, 
didn't really give my husband much credit. <laughs> my husband and I, I feel like have a true partnership and he's a really successful real estate developer. It's not like he just was a, you know, didn't have his own professional career and aspirations, but we worked as a team and he always is really sweet around saying that I was able to, you know, have a paycheck every two weeks, you know, a nice paycheck and he could take, it enabled him to take more risks and do what he wanted to do. And so we were working together toward kind of back to the integration of family and profession, like what we were working toward as a family, you know, was happiness and joy, well-adjusted children, that sort of thing. And so we figured out how to, he and I work as a team. And so sometimes, you know, we had nannies sometimes. we helped each other. Sometimes he had more flexibility and he could stay home in a pinch. Sometimes we had to call a friend of the family who was the only service in town, you know, that could give you a last minute babysitter. But we, we just kind of had a network and then we accessed those pieces as we needed and supported each other. That's amazing. That's really amazing. I think having that, that seems to be a very, again, a common theme is that the importance of the partner, a true partner at home where you're a team and you understand one another's goals and ambitions and are willing to make trade-offs with one another to make it work. And you're aligned on what you want for your life and your family. And so I think that's, that's really amazing that you you know, have found that. And we didn't, I didn't even hit on it, but how amazing that it's, it's your high school sweetheart. I just think that (laughs) how it's so poetic in so many ways. I love that. It's a little weird because we've known each other literally since the eighth grade. So, you know, now all these years later, I I've known him longer than I've known anybody really. Right. That's amazing though. I love, I really, I love that. Okay. So you were, you were at SSNK for four years and then you kind of boomeranged back to, to Icon and to Iconologic. I did. At four years, it, it got to be a lot doing yeah. the back and forth. I was in New York at the end twice a month. And so I knew I needed to make a change and my kids were getting toward middle school ages where I really found that was an important time for me to be more present. And so I approached Brad and George, the principals at Iconologic and said, where are you guys and what are you doing these days? And they said, we really need more strategy. We, you know, we don't feel like we provide enough strategic counsel to our clients and we could use some help with that. And Mm -hmm. so I started helping them with strategy. <laughs> That's, I mean, I love that though. And I mean, so I think like we're seeing this theme with you, you are unbelievably proactive. And like when you set your sight on something like going after it and, you know, you did that with going to LA, you did that with reaching out to Kathy, you did that now with a kind of logic. Like, I think this is, you know, asking for what you want. Like, this is such a really cool thing of you, you doing that, you kind of having an idea of what you want and then going for it, which is sometimes the hard step that people don't take. They may think what they want, but they don't actually do it. 
Right. And, you know, it's funny that you key on that. And that is one thing that I tell a lot of people that I talk to younger people, um, particularly women, don't be afraid of that. (laughs) Like, really, it's, first of all, a lot of most guys don't think twice about doing what I did. And women have way more credentials and are typically more, you know, in tune with making sure that they're crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's at work. And so we shouldn't be afraid as women to ask for what we want, especially in context of what we can give in return. Right, right, exactly. And those go hand in hand. You know, I think you can't make demands if you don't have, you can't back it up. Right, exactly. but but definitely not shortchanging yourself when you have the credentials, you have the expertise and, you know, you've worked really hard for those. So, you know, they now are a resource to leverage. <laughs> right. I was also very aware the whole time that I wasn't a lawyer or a doctor or yeah. even a CPA. I didn't have one of those careers where you could exit and then just pop right back in at the same level where you left. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of women at this time would just leave the workforce to raise their families and then either choose not to come back at all or feel like they had to start at the reception desk, you know, when, when they had left at a much higher level. So I wanted to, I think that my motivation for asking for reduced time was to make sure I was keeping sort of a foot in the door and being able to continue doing what I loved. Right. As well as, I mean, you know, and probably more just because I loved it. It was stimulating. I just couldn't see myself. And I highly respect people that do choose to stay home full time, but it was, it was important for, and my sister actually chose the latter path, but it was important for me just to, to kind of stay in the game. Yeah. You know, you, you bring up, that's such a, an amazing point because where my mind goes is I, I think to say that any marginalized group, um, in this case, we're talking about women are not at a disadvantage is foolish. Even today to say like, you're not working from some sort of deficit. And, you know, in this case, what I here in what you describe is a very creative solution because you know working full-time really wasn't viable for what you wanted at home and leaving the workforce knowing what type of roles you wanted and the type of responsibility you wanted leaving wasn't really an option either right because you didn't want to have to come back at a lower level than when you had left which gosh that I just get so angry just thinking about that. But that, you know, it's, but that's the reality, right? I love this idea of facing the reality in front of you and then coming up with a way to make it work. You know, I think that's really, and again, I think women tend to be very good at this. Like they are very creative problem solvers. And I love that you're a, a great example of like, okay, let's look at, let's look at the cards on the table. What's in front of us, the challenges that we face and how do I make it work? Yes. So many women I talk to are so good at doing that for Mm -hmm. the companies they work for, but they won't do it for themselves. Uh, Yes. (laughs) I know. Gosh, we're funny creatures sometimes. I know. (laughs) But I love that. Such a, I'm so glad you called that out because I do think it's a great example. And, and sometimes it's as simple as asking yourself, you know, what could it look like? If, if I could make this work, what might it look like? It's amazing how all of a sudden 
all these ideas start to come to the surface um, instead of just writing it off that it's just not possible. Well, and inviting the people that you want to do it with to help you create that. And I think it is kind of ironic that the people that agreed to let me take on these high level reduced work weeks were all men. Right. (laughs) They were all middle-aged white men, actually. (laughs) And I think it was just because they were the right guys at the right time. Yeah. But then we collaboratively figured it out. Like I didn't have the whole job description and, you know, the goal list and everything when I came to them. Right. I knew I had a generalized skill set that they, that could be beneficial, but then we really did have to work together to figure out if it was going to work for both of us. And right. Right. Gosh, man. And that just goes back to the whole, like, get started. Like you don't have to have all of the answers. You can have an idea and then ideate with somebody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love that so much. Okay. So this is, becomes a really interesting time because, you know, you do that for another eight years you work with them and as, as a strategist and consultant, and then you branch out and actually start your own consulting agency or your I consulting did. firm, the bee I colony. Did. I did. So this is starting to make me sound really, really old. Or you keep going on about this how many years, but <laughs> <laughs> so I will admit by this time, the bee colony was really part of that. It was another yeah. consulting iteration, but it was myself and a partner who I really actually, I had worked with. 20 years prior in the business world and she had come up through public relations and I had come up through brand and marketing. And so our, you know, sort of getting together was really beneficial and I love her to death. We're workout partners to this day, Um, (laughs) but we, that was just really another iteration of the consulting, but I was also heading toward 50 at that time. I was about to turn 50. And when I turned 50 is really where I feel like I made the switch in mindset to a true entrepreneur mindset, even though that was our business. And technically I was an entrepreneur at the bee colony. It was when I turned 50 that I decided to take all of the experience that I had and the sort of the consumer driven business technology, integrated marketing experience and develop my own consumer business. And that's what I did. So in it, what's so fascinating is when we started this conversation, you know, you talk about how even as a young girl, like you were very entrepreneurial in nature. And so this, this seems as though this turning point was really kind of a destiny, if anything, of like yeah. this had always kind of been written in your stars of who you were deep down yeah. from little, little early childhood years. So yeah, so this is when you launched your first brand and in Wopo. Right. That's oh my right. gosh. Tell us about what this was. How did it come to be, you know, kind of what, how you got into finally now really, truly becoming an entrepreneur? Well, so I've been doing a lot of my own purpose work, even before this leading up to, you know, through my forties. And I also feel like I should say that my forties were tough. I mean, and I now being in my fifties have seen other women in their 40s have what I think is a similarly tough time. And it was was because of 
perimenopause and hormones and all the life changes that are happening. And so I was really doing a lot of work around purpose and, and trying to, you know, manage all the irrational feelings and thoughts I was having at the time and, and kind of digging deep. And so it helped me to define my own purpose and it helped me to try to help other women do the same thing, you know, younger women that I was working with. So my purpose was really around empowering myself and others to live their most healthy and creative and connected lives. And that led me to WOPO because I was inspired. I was actually, I was inspired by my daughter mostly who was in middle school, heading toward high school. Pretty sure she might've been in the eighth grade. And I was also at the time mentoring high school and middle school girls at the Boys and Girls Club, which is where I met Catherine O'Day. Um, <laughs> and, you know, at the time, the girls that I knew were looking for, they were dealing with hormones. You know, they were all of the age where the kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from where I was, just like the, the ramping up of their hormones. But they were looking for base layers that would provide them with some support, not necessarily Spanx-esque, you know, where they were compressed, but they just wanted some smoothness and support if they were having, I don't know, you know, cramps or whatever, like they just wanted a little bit of support and smoothness. And at the time there were really no options for base layers. My own daughter was wearing her lacrosse shorts under her prom dress, <laughs> for example, or she was wearing like two sports bras to bed, you know, when she was on her period. And so I was like, why isn't there like something that's not like Victoria's Secret or as highly compressive as Spanx for a younger girl. And so I decided to create it. So I could, the brand, and I also felt really inspired by Tom's shoes at the time because um, the purpose-driven nature of their company, and they were kind of the beginning of the whole movement. And so I thought that young girls should be the ones to really take feminism to the next level. They should define what feminism meant, not women my age. <laughs> and so I wanted to not only create a, a brand and products that solve their problems, but I also wanted to give them a voice and a platform to talk about what being female means and finding their own empowerment or their own expression of empowerment. Yeah. So I created a whole line of base layers. I learned all about seamless technology and circular knitting and production. <laughs> I had worked with clients in the past to develop products, but I had never from start to finish sourced my own manufacturing, created my own product, you know, and then brought it to market and commercialized it before. So I was putting all those pieces together for the very first time. Wow. So brave again. <laughs> oh my god i that is I, I i love that the origin story of this yeah. company and really where it came from and then also just the the purpose and the vision behind it of what you wanted to achieve as far as empowering these young women you know to 
you know, to feel again, to feel good in their, to feel good in their skin, to feel good in their clothes, but also to have a place where they had a voice. I think that's, that's really, really amazing. And this is a really interesting segue because, because you dabbled in this area, it led to you becoming the GM at Spanx, specifically in what is it, Blakely Ventures, where uh-huh. you were heading up Sarah Blakely's incubator. Yep. Yep. I mean, who could have seen that? <laughs> I know. Amazing. I did not. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> How did that come to be? So, Sarah at the time had uh, been without a CEO for quite some time. She had had one and then didn't, hadn't had one for, I think nearly a decade by then. Wow. And was interviewing for a new CEO. And one of the top finalists was an executive at Nike. Mm -hmm. And one of my lifelong friends who I actually met from working at TRW (laughs) at the beginning of my career. (laughs) I hired her husband for his very first job out of college and she and I became friends and running partners and have now been friends for, you know, 30 years. So my friend was an executive at Nike and knew this executive from Nike. And when that woman became one of the top two finalists for the job, she asked my friend to introduce her to me just because she wanted to meet somebody from the South. You know, she was about my age and said, I need to just make sure I could actually live in the South. <laughs> you know, she was from right. Oregon. She had lived in in Massachusetts and she was concerned about, you know, what does it mean to live in the South? And she had a family with kids. Yeah. And so we met and got to know each other. And, you know, my friend told her in full disclosure that I was working on a brand that was adjacent to what Spanx was doing, but that I was fine. And I was doing my own thing, which is exactly what I asked her to tell her. It's like, right. (laughs) I'm happy to meet your friend and I'll help her any way I can with schools or culture, (laughs) whatever. And so she and I became friends and I did those things. I helped her, you know, kind of evaluate neighborhoods and schools and all of that. And she finally said to me, all right, tell me what you're doing. (laughs) And so I did. And she said, this is what, you know, Spanx has to talk to the younger girl at some point. Anyway, she introduced me to Sarah, long story short. And when I finally, and I, of course, knew about Sarah Blakely. I mean, everybody does. Sure. (laughs) Respected her from afar. But when I met her, I was just blown away. And there hadn't been a Blakely venture. She hadn't had an incubator, but because she was hiring a CEO, she really was ready to develop kind of her brand. And, you know, how could she support the Spanx business, but, but let that grow under the CEO. And also what was her next step? She's still young and, you know, where is she going? So we just talked and, you know, I think, I was sort of a unique combination that I brought because I'd been in a corporation, a corporate environment before. So it wasn't scary to, you know, be in a Spanx environment. I'd been a consultant and I had been an entrepreneur. And so I kind of had that 360 degree view of business and her business and, and her. 
and we just hit it off. And I really, so I decided to, they let me be on the Spanx leadership team, which was amazing. And then I also led the incubator, like, as you said, and we developed new businesses that were aligned with Spanx, but outside of the Spanx umbrella. And we worked with other entrepreneurs and we developed her brand and it was, it was tons of fun. It was great. Yes. You know, I, I think this is just such a, again, it's very poetic in so many ways of coming on the heels of so much self-reflection, very purpose-focused exercises, you know, throughout your 40s and that, you know, really kind of being really strongly rooted in who you were and what you wanted. And now this, almost this job seeming as though it was made for you in a lot of ways, you know, you tapping into all of the areas of your experience, all the things that had kind of been part of you with the corporate work that you'd done, the consulting, your entrepreneur, I mean, it's just so, it's so fun to be able to look back and see how all of these things came together. It is. And what an incredible experience to be able to be in such a, a well-known brand with a entrepreneur that is, you know, just to your point, just incredibly dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then getting to, to real again, to pioneer, to be in a big resource company and part of a small, smaller team that's going to do really cool things. Yep. For sure. Yeah. It was great. And I wish I could say that that started in my thirties, but it, it didn't really start until my forties. Yeah. And I think that's important to say because as random as my first job was out of college, you know, I feel like I kind of put my head down and just sort of work the work through my thirties as many women do. Uh, it wasn't like I had some secret formula I did, I think, ha- take risks and have that courage. But I think some of that was from necessity, being a single mom and and those sorts of things. But right. I am glad that I did start the process of really looking into that in my 40s. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think about this a lot. And through these conversations I have, I'm always so fascinated because it seems as though people's like, I, I really do believe like cream rises. Right? I mean, I think extraordinary people find a way to be successful and sometimes the path is winding and sometimes the timeline is is longer, but it's, it happens. And, but I think it, you're bringing up a really great point of it's coupled with that understanding of self. It's coupled with, you know, the introspection of what, who am I, what do I want, you know, and leading your life with intention and being proactive. Yes. And then that's kind of where that whole, you know, what you seek is seeking you starts to really start to come to life yes. instead of just, yeah, blinders on. I'm just going to get through and, you know, kind of do what I need to do to get through what I need to get through. Absolutely. And Gosh. letting your life have a life. I mean, I really can't yeah. stress the importance of considering your, your life as much as your career. They're, they're really integrated. They're the same thing almost. I mean, if they're not completely separate. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that's so, so powerful. Well, we are, you know, so I think this is kind of the last, you know, the last stop before where you are today, which is you've gone back to launching another amazing product at the inactive company. And then you're also with birth where you're really helping brands bring their products to market. So I guess kind of rounding us out here, you know, 
a little backstory on how did you decide to go back and launch another brand and also have, you know, stay in consulting? Yes. Well, the Sarah ended up switching gears with this, this Nike CEO and, you know, it, it just was what it was a very corporate minded person and a very entrepreneurial person. And when, when, when that happened, having been through my journey, I really, what I wasn't up for was kind of what happens in a company when, when that happens. And, you know, I, I didn't want to go under the Spanx umbrella completely and, and, and do a corporate job. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Sarah and I, I just went to her and I said, why don't we just do a a nice exit? And so we did, and it was, you know, almost a year long where (laughs) we just finished things up and it was great. And then I just sort of said, what did I like the most about what I did with her? And it was working with these entrepreneurs and there was also a major white space and need for specifically consumer goods mm. startups. Those founders don't have any support. They, mm. they don't get any funding. There's, you know, there are difficulties in terms of their, creating their business because the timelines are different. You know, they have manufacturing needs and they're global resources, but they're not always easy to find. And so I really wanted to specifically help those entrepreneurs. And then I, in that process, kind of fell into the sleep business. (laughs) And I've always personally struggled with sleep. I never have gotten enough sleep. I mean, you know, the nature of having three children in a career, I think a lot of people share with me, like you try to lay down and go to bed and your mind just will not turn off. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been a major insomniac and sleep masks were initially brought to my attention by another sleep sufferer. And (laughs) I was like, oh my God, this is like, this reminds me of Sarah and the girdle opportunity or Kevin Plank from Under Armour and the white t-shirt opportunity. The sleep mask has never been innovated. There's There's so much that can be done with it, that's based, grounded in science, and that can really help people. There's a huge need for more and better sleep. It's a real problem. You know, this is a product that really could be re-engineered and innovated. And so I decided to launch the inactive company as a sleep performance company. And we're starting with the sleep mask. So we have the first ever performance sleep mask that we just sold to the Atlanta Falcons, the entire team. Maybe that'll Um, make them play better. Yes. (laughs) That is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. But I have a co-founder who is a former Spankster as well. And she and I are going through Georgia Tech's ATDC um, Tech AF program. And so it's led by Kristen Slink, who, guess what? Catherine O'Day introduced me to. There you go. (laughs) So we're, we're developing the tech side of our business, but it really, it's going, it's a, it's a sleep performance company. We want to build products and technology and community that connect rest and recovery to Mm. performance, peak performance, helping everybody achieve their peak performance. I mean, that is so, I can't wait to see and try it. And I think what's really cool is that sleep is 
I mean, I'm so glad that it's really coming to the forefront for people because the research behind sleep is in some ways alarming. I, you know, I know uh, when we reconnected a couple of weeks ago, I had recently heard, you know, you don't ever catch up on sleep. That's right. Which was a kind of a terrifying concept. So you think about when you have a bad night's sleep or when you just aren't, you're depriving yourself of sleep that's gone. You don't, it's not a, you know, it's not something that you ever catch up on. So I think it's such a great thing to be investing in because there's awareness now that it's important and imagine what we could do if we had, if we give ourselves the gift of sleep. So, Oh, I, I love that so much. Well, ah, I know we're coming to a close here. I say it every time, but I mean it every time. It's so hard to end these because I just would love to keep going. But I think one of the things that I always ask is to think back on your career. And it could be something that either was the best piece of advice that was given to you that has just served you so well, or it could be something that over your career, you've learned that you, you know, maybe would go back and tell a younger self, what's that one thing that you would want people listening to, to walk away with? I would have to say it would be to give yourself a break. Mm. And I like that because you it's literally give yourself a break, like take breaks, <laughs> take care of yourself, you know, make your self care a priority, especially as women, we don't do that. Take breaks throughout the day. I don't care if somebody's paying you to be on the clock from nine to five. It is okay to stand up every hour and, you know, do some deep breathing or, take a lunch where you sit outside or whatever. But so give yourself a break, literally, but also give yourself a break emotionally and mentally. Don't be so hard on yourself. Ask for help. (laughs) Don't be self-critical. Don't second guess yourself. You're doing it right. Even if you make mistakes, you know, Mm. like just give yourself a break. Guys don't worry as much as women do about, are we doing this right? You know, and, and I think we drive ourselves until we're just completely empty and you can't save the world on empty. You have, you, if you, you got to give yourself a break and fill yourself back up. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I think it's such a good message that it's so important to remind ourselves over and over and over and over again, because it's really easy to forget. It is. Oh my gosh. Well, Lori, thank you so much for this time and for being on. It's just been such a treat hearing your incredible story and just hearing all the amazing things that you've done. It's just, it truly is so inspiring. Thank you, Margaret. I'm honored. And I really appreciate what you're doing for all of us. I've been listening to your, all your podcasts and they're amazing. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. One of the things I loved about this conversation is just the timing Lori really shines a light on the unconventional path and the value of being true to yourself, knowing what your purpose is, what's important to you, and then being willing to ask for what you want. And it's really great to get to hear her share how she was able to do this in her career and provide insight into how others might also be able to do this. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, I strongly encourage you to reach out and let Lori know the impact it had on you. You can also leave a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. We always appreciate that. And if you're at a point where you're seeking more purpose and wanting to invest there, take a look at the Rising Tide Retreat. This is a three-day weekend at the end of October that is structured to help you define your values, figure out where you need better alignment in your life, create a bold vision for your future, and then build the next steps to start moving in the direction that's going to ultimately let you live in your fullest potential. If you want to learn more details, you can go to thisisrisingtide.com forward slash retreat to learn more. Thank you all so much for being here. I love this community so much and look forward to see you on the next one. Until then.